Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cage Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at legal changes on 888, SLB regulation, and the incursion of direct lending into high yield and leveraged loan deals. But first, the Levfin wrap. In bonds, Pamira-backed fashion business Schusterman & Borenstein is issuing €315 million worth of senior secured FRNs. They're currently talked at E plus 600 BIPs at 85. Loans are a bit more active with Galileo Education and Theramex each in the market. In a rare LBO deal for this beleaguered market, Theramex is being acquired by Carlisle and PAI from CVC for 1.27 billion euros. The woman's health business is raising a 550 million euro TLB to support its purchase. And that tranche is currently talked at 525 over Eurobor with a 92.5 to 93.5 OID. Just for a little bit of context, Labs, Group Innovi and Diagnostic Services Provider Affidea each priced at 94 in late June. So that might give you an idea of which way the market is moving for these comparatively stable, well-known healthcare businesses. Galileo is also out with a 250 million euro add-on loan to support acquisitions and is being talked at 500 over Eurobor and a 92 OID. The tranche has a slew of sponsors behind it, including Montague, and is one in a train of add-on loans sneaking through the market gates this summer. And finally, there's been crickets from a certain CBC deal in the gambling sector. Gaming One was issuing a €300 million euro deal and lenders were expecting an update last week, but sources are now telling Nine from the team is still working on it. Those sources are saying bookrunners Makari and Bamel are still showing syndicated lenders the deal in the low 90s, but direct lenders could also be looking at it at a lower pricing than that. The possibility that Makari could take down their own underwritten portion into some own brand pocket of capital has also not been ruled out. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up. And here with me today, I have co-head of European Loans Research, Christine Tognoli. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Kat. Thank you. So you and Janisha Amin, also co-head of European Loans Research, took a look at the bonds um, doc changes on 888 and gave me a little guidance on what has shifted. So there were around... 20 changes, many of which involved usual suspects, such as reducing basket sizes. So the debt freebie basket at 100% was reduced to 75%. Uh, The level at which you can incur further senior secured debt was also tightened. Uh, But there was also pushback on the concepts that are usually left alone through syndication. Some were market-driven, for example, with reporting the company put in a semi-annual presentation for investors and removed the optional redemption of fixed-rate notes, which is typically done at 10% at 1.03. We also saw amounts used to fund OID not being allowed to be used for ratio calculations given the level of OID that we are seeing in the market. 
And there were some document changes that went beyond that, surrounding calculation flexibilities and the applicable reporting date concept. Yeah, another interesting change in 888 um, was around uh, the asset sales covenant. And again, something that we don't see a lot of pushback and a lot of focus on, um, both in, in bonds and loans. And this is around the um, application of proceeds menu. So generally speaking, in an asset sale covenant, the conceptually, proceeds of material asset sales should either be applied towards deleveraging or reinvestment in the business. Those are sort of the kind of um, overarching concepts and of uh, the protection of an asset sale covenant. What we occasionally see is that there's a third option. So deleveraging, reinvesting the proceeds in the business, or funding restricted payments or and permitted investments with the proceeds of asset sales, uh, presuming that they have the accrued restricted payment capacity to do so. Uh, that that latter point sneaks in sometimes, and it doesn't tend to be the focus um, of, of many investors' reviews of the documentation. But it can be quite nasty. Um, what it what it effectively allows is assets to be sold off, and the proceeds sent straight out to fund restricted payments where where a group has accrued restricted payment capacity. So it was interesting and and, and good to see that removed in eight 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 because that is something that. Um, has snuck into several deals now across you know bonds and loans um, that we don't think gets as much attention as it as it probably should given its potential implications um, another interesting change on 888 that again isn't something that we've seen quite as commonly and and, and again it's maybe um because it's quite a drafting point a nuanced point in the change control and it's something again that we see both in bonds and loans and it's um crept in quite a bit over the last few years and is relatively common in in both bonds and loans now and that's having a um public holding company exception for the change of control so what it effectively allows um is is for a public company with no controlling shareholder so that has you know a, a group of dispersed shareholders um, it allows that company to come in and acquire the issuer <clears throat> without triggering a change of control. So in 888, they had that um, that that language that would not trigger change of control, and it was it was deleted. Uh, it, it's perhaps been a bit more of a focus of investors in both loans and bonds, um, possibly even since Refinitiv. So LSE's acquisition of Refinitiv didn't trigger a change of control because the um, Refinitiv debt instruments had similar language allowing um, a public company with no controlling shareholder to to come in and acquire without triggering the change of control. You mentioned that it's just the sheer volume of docs changes on this deal. It's interesting. We don't usually get to see that many on a bond deal. Is this a watershed moment for docs pushback? Will this trigger the market to push back more? I mean, I think this is largely market driven. Uh, you know, in you, you do see here and there uh, that you know some changes to bonds between the preliminary OM and the final OM. Uh, it tends to be a handful of changes. Maybe you know, maybe they they've tried just a few too many of the more you know novel or aggressive features, and one or two get get taken out in between um, the prelim and the final. Uh, what was interesting with 888 and you know a few a few weeks back intertape as well were the sheer number of changes you know 20 30 changes between prelim and final um it's this that sort of level of changes that that's unusual and a bit surprising um you know 
we consistently see pushback and changes in um, a loan syndication process, you know, from term sheet to initial draft SFA to final SFA. That's not surprising. And that sort of cuts across, you know, market um, market volatility or, or good markets. It just really um, is, is something we see fairly consistently. Um, but it, it, but in the in bonds, uh, much less so. And so, yeah, I, I, it's very interesting in 888 and intertape the, the the number of changes, which is is certainly driven by the current market. Uh, and also, I think it's a bit of, um, you know, some issuers are coming to market, sponsors issues coming to market, putting in the same, you know, aggressive features that they might have got away with um, six months ago, a year ago, but, um, you know, sticking to the same documentation, but in the current market where it's just a bit more of a difficult sell. I think if you want to push a bond through in the current market, you don't want noise around the covenants. You want it to be relatively, you know, as, as tight as you can possibly make it, um, that will work for the business. So you just don't have that distraction, um, when, when you're marketing, because I think in this market, anything, um, you know, is going to be picked apart. So it's just not, it's not the market to try the more aggressive sponsor friendly terms. If you would like to read more about 888 and push back on other deals in the market, such as Intertape, go to ninefin.com and read our report, Pushback from Bond Investors. European loans next. Next up, please raise responsibly our section on ESG. With me, I have the lovely Jack David, our ESG analyst. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kat. So following our recent ESG Primer webinar, we received some questions about the sustainability-linked bond market in high yield. We'll attempt to answer just one of these questions today. Yeah, exactly. So uh, two of our ESG-focused credit analysts presented a very good webinar recently, giving some insight into what they've seen with sustainability-linked deals recently. The sustainability-linked bond market represents about 14% of the total high-yield issuance, uh, but... In terms of the sustainability-linked bond issuance, 40% of that was within high yield. So quite a high proportion of SRBs were, were actually high yields in 2021. So yeah, it's, it's certainly a growing asset class and is attracting a lot of attention as well as uh, more scrutiny um, in how these deals are set up. Nice. So one of the questions we got was, uh, what regulation is in place for sustainability-linked issuance? And is there any guidance on the structural flaws of SLBs? At present, there's no regulation in place for any of these sustainability-linked deals. Uh, and there's nothing really beyond voluntary guidance uh, in the pipeline, meaning that companies really can just set whatever conditions they like. There has been some investor pushback, but really they can get away with anything from just an, um, an ambitious KPIs right through to out, outright greenwashing in some cases. So the ICMA has set out a framework with five core components that issuers should align to. Uh, this is selection of KPIs, calibration of these KPIs, uh, the characteristics of the bond, and the reporting and verification. They've also now introduced a database of guidance on 300 KPIs, and they've extended their Q&A. Uh, and in all of, uh, all of the, the sustainability link issuance uh, through 2021, we found the vast majority, that being all but three issuers uh, aligned to this guidance in their documentation. However, the guidance is voluntary and there isn't a strict framework around the structuring of these deals. So the ICMA Deputy CEO and Head of Sustainable Finance, Nicholas Bath, said we're not regulators 
but uh, it should be noted that there's specific guidance now and it's comprehensive and transparent. He said that investors will take a view and at some point regulators might take a view. So it's a start and we have seen investors taking a view. Uh, we've seen pushback on, on a number of uh, sustainability linked deals in 2021. But on the other hand, the coupon step ups are so small in general that's not really going to make or break a deal and won't really affect the credit profile. Another big structural issue with the deals that's been spoken about a lot is the issue of uh, callable bonds where they might be uh, refinanced or repaid before the test date for the KPIs, which would render the whole sustainability link mechanism obsolete. Um, we found that the average testing date as a percentage of the bond tenor was 50%. Therefore, we can safely say targets will be tested before redemption in, in a number or a lot of cases. However, we can safely say a number of or a lot of these deals will likely be tested before redemption. However, the loophole does exist as an option for issuers. Any solutions to this? One solution to this could be intermediate testing dates. We've already seen this in one issuer, can one. Next up, we have the deep discussion where we take a few minutes to discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. Today, I'm with the lovely Lara Gibson. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Lara. Hello, thank you for having me. She is a recent joiner um, to Nine Finn. She's a distressed debt reporter, but she's certainly not a noob to the discussion that we're having today. <laughs> um, we're going to be speaking a bit about uh, direct lending and the incursion that it's making into the leveraged finance market. So Levfin journalists have spoken about this incursion into the January syndicate market for some time now. Um, it, it was it came particularly into the fore, I think, during COVID nineteen. Would you agree with that, Laura? Yeah, maybe slightly before, but it definitely ramped up during COVID. Mm. Um, we saw larger direct lenders picking up debt in those hung syndications of that era for sure. Um, for example, in June 2020, Aries Management, along with a consortium of other lenders, including Alrock, provided a £1.875 billion loan financing to the Ardno Group, a UK-based insurance intermediary group. Um, and that was according to Reuters in June 2020. The company also took $500 million worth of senior pick toggle notes, paying 11.5% as shown on ninefin.com. But over the last couple of years, uh, or mainly 2021, we've been chasing these types of stories where direct lenders get into the generally syndicated market with very little luck, um, just because pricing was so low. During those easy breezy days, uh, direct lenders had very little incentive to approach larger issuers with, um, with the HY and leveraged loans market available to them. But now that pricing is kind of in the five handle range a lot more um, for the odd primary deal that does come to the market. And OIDs are now fairly regularly pushing into the 80s with the likes of 888 and Rodenstock. Direct lenders, I think, have their ears pricked very much for these types of deals. Um, sell siders are also enthusiastic about the use of direct lenders uh, to clear their balance sheets. A number of them have been calling all sorts of funds um, from what I've been hearing from, from sources. I spoke with one asset manager opening a direct lending arm soon, which has yet to raise any funds at all. And they've already had sell siders getting in touch to see if there might be some availability to pick up those larger hung deals in the market. 
I spoke to another direct lender with a sub 1 billion euro fund, and they've also had phone calls from major banks to pick up their deals. Um, in, a, in a recent development, book runners Goldman Sachs, KKR Capital Markets and Jefferies have almost placed a 650 million euro uh, piece for Goldman's buyout of Norgene with a club of lenders. Lara, what do you think of this situation? Um, it, it was the banks always kind of planned to syndicate this directly to, to, to direct lenders. Do you think this is something that we might see in the market a bit more? Yep. So Norgene was quite an interesting one in that the banks who underwrote the deal kind of always planned to syndicate straight to direct lenders. And from what I've been hearing, although it was, it's quite unusual at the time, it will become more and more popular, mainly because um, the public markets are quite choppy and the private markets are a bit more buoyant. And we're getting to the point now where pricing is almost um, at the same levels. Obviously, it's slightly more expensive to go private, but at the same time, it's a bit more reliable in some ways and that you can execute the deal much faster and private lenders have a much stronger appetite in the market right now. Issuers going to direct lending after a general syndication will obviously be paying even more for the pleasure of having marketed to all those investors before going to direct lenders. But I think it's a testament to how busy the direct lending market is that pricing hasn't skyrocketed in this environment. What kind of pricing can you expect? In- um, so I think on this deal, from we spoke to quite a lot of sources who are working on it, and they expect pricing to be around Uriba plus 6.25. Mm-hmm. So that's like, although it's maybe slightly more expensive than what you would typically get in the leveraged loan market in the past, it's still not particularly high. Yeah, uh, we also wrote a piece recently about Hankamala. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, um, and you, you wrote about direct lenders potentially circling to provide finance there. How how would that type of a transaction differ from the standard hung deals that direct lenders get involved in, in in primary? Obviously, this one's been distressed previously. It's a big secondary name out there. Often been in our largest uh, fallers for the Levfin Wrap, if anyone out there re- reads the Levfin Wrap. Um, yeah, how would this situation differ from, say, the Norgene one? Um, so Hunky Muller, JP Morgan and ING provided a bridge facility a few months ago to refi all of Hunky Muller's debt following the acquisition. I think Carlisle put it up for sale last year. And in March, it was announced that Parcom, this Dutch private equity firm, had acquired it. Um, so we, I spoke to some sources like working on the deal and they were saying that no long-term financing solution has yet been found, kind of given the st- troubled state of the European high yield and leveraged loan markets. And the underwriters, JP Morgan and ING, have been kind of approaching direct lenders and considering all options. I think the reason why this one is slightly different is that from the standard hung deals, which direct lenders would have been taking down recently, is that Hunky Muller is a retailer, a sector they don't particularly like, and it has maybe like, are they, it's not, it's doing badly, it's doing okay, but maybe it's not such a strong performer in terms of growth compared to like technology and healthcare assets, which they feel more comfortable going for. 
Okay, fascinating. Well, I mean, we're hearing about loads of this going on. These aren't like, the only two deals. Um, I think m m my colleague Laura Thompson and I just put out a, something on um, Gaming One and how that might be going to direct lenders. I've even heard um, the idea of Unilever T going privately um, to direct lenders. Do you think this is a shift that we're seeing that will be permanent are, are, are these direct lenders in our space for good now uh i think they will do like once they've had an appetite for it they probably would stay and i think for sure direct lenders will play an increasingly bigger role in the high yield and leverage loan spaces i think the current conditions have created the perfect storm for direct lenders as they have lots of dry powder which they need to deploy and are now able to participate in larger deals they previously would have struggled to access However, having said that, I think there is a limit to what they can do and the role they can play. I think someone who spoke to Nine Fin this week was saying that, yes, sure, they've worked with direct lenders and they're definitely going to feature on some transactions and they will take a larger share of the market. But especially for the large, large deals, they're going to struggle to fill that hole. And I think he also said that every single deal going on right now has had a call from direct lenders, but the excitement over that sector solving the hung pipeline is definitely overstated. Well, so we know why issuers like direct lenders, certainty of financing, um, particularly. What 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 do direct lenders want from the issuers? Typically, it depends on the nature of the fund. Whether it's a fund which will happily lend at like six seven percent to quite solid assets, or if it's a fund which wants to charge like 11, 12, 13%, but is happy to play in riskier parts of the market. I think the typical direct lender feels comfortable with kind of technology, healthcare assets, which have strong recurring revenue and a promising future. One example of a popular company among direct lenders is the business management software provider Access Group. So in April, a club of direct lenders provided a uni tranche around 2.5 billion to refinance access group. Something some people have noted about this deal is that it's very club light, despite a huge sum. And I think they commented that the club light nature of this deal kind of highlights how confident the direct lenders are and how willing they are to go into these big territories. And that's all we have time for this week. And if you do want to read more about some of these situations, head to ninefin.com insights, where you can see some of our content in front of the paywall, or you can drop us an email at team at ninefin.com. We're always keen to hear your suggestions for topic ideas, your comments on our discussions and your feedback on the platform. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and share it tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.